The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with a frequent guest of the show, David Morgan, the Silver Guru, an expert on money, metals, and mining, also a lecturer and an author. Mr. Morgan has written Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, available on Amazon.com. His website is TheMorganReport.com. David, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's great to be back with you. Having bought physical silver this year over the $30 price point, I'm now waiting, I suppose, for it to hit 26 or $25 before I jump back in and accumulate more. We spoke during the last year, and you said anytime it's under 30 it's a good time to buy. Where are you at today? Well, I'm being consistent. Basically, I've been buying both the equities and the metal itself about the last four or five months on a pretty consistent basis, meaning, you know, dollar cost averaging. I bought some probably as high as 33 a few months back. I've definitely bought greater amounts under 30 because we've been uh, under 30 for a while now. And, of course, the question continues, and everyone wants to answer me, too, because I'm not certain you know, where is the bottom and how far will it fall and all of that. Really, it appears that we may be at the bottom now. The lowest low we've had on this intermediate-term correction, which started from the high of $48 back in April last year till now, so we've been well over a year, has been 26.10 on the spot market. And, of course, we're well over 27 today. That could be it. I think that's it. But, again, we don't know. That is a key area, though. For anyone that's listening that wants to like have an edge or really think about this, if you're really convinced it's going lower, that's the key resistance level, the low 26s. If it gets below there and stays there for like three days in a row, you're pretty well assured we're going to seek a new bottom. And where that is, that really can be determined now. Chart-wise, it's actually around the $20 level. Would it be safe to say that anywhere under $30, it wouldn't be a bad idea to accumulate then? Yeah, I want to be consistent here. I think strongly that we're at the bottom. I also think that uh, we got a floor built in, brought, just bought 200, probably for $200 million to buy more silver at around this level, around the $27 level. And I don't have any inside track, although I do uh, speak with them uh, about every other week. And I think that they view silver as I do, that anything under 30 physically is a buy, and they think that, you know, 26, 27 is low enough to go ahead, you know, pull out a great amount of physical silver out of the market. So this is more or less creating a floor. I mean, Sprott can't do it alone, but almost, because $200 million in the physical market is a rather significant amount. So last time he made a purchase of that size, it actually moved the market up about $2.50, jury's out on this because although the uh, entities that want to participate in this offering are doing so, the actual silver has not yet been delivered. So I'm, you know, watching it carefully. Again, I'm not worried about it getting into the low 20s. I really doubt that's going to happen, but I want to be consistent. There's anyone out there in the world that knows for certain. 
Sprott's not alone in securing large amounts of silver at this time. China is also involved. Absolutely. You know, something that uh, I forecast and and others as well about the China situation, if you go back about 20 years, China was using about 170th the amount of silver on a per capita or per person basis that North America's were. Because we had such a more technology, anything that's electrical, electronic uses silver. And, of course, a richer country, so you have, you know, more mirrors and more other jewelry and everything else goes along with it. But if you go back about two decades, China accounted for 3% of global silver demand. Today, that's 16%. So that's over a 500% increase over the last two decades. If you go again back that same amount 20 years ago, China produced about 5% of the global supply, and today they produce 14% of the global supply. On top of that, if you go back only 10 years, China was exporting about 100 million ounces of silver on an annual basis. Today they import about 100 million ounces on an annual basis. So this huge shift has taken place in the silver market in China. And unless you study the market carefully, and I don't expect everyone to do that, that's my job and what I get paid for, there's this huge underlying sleeping giant, if you will. And these aren't necessarily silver investors. These are just the Chinese people that now can buy an iPhone or have an iPad or a laptop computer or getting electricity or buying their first washing machine or putting electricity in their home or moving from the country into the city and getting an apartment using electricity. Any of these things. In other words, the more industrialized a society is, the more dependent they are on the silver market. And it holds for China as well as anywhere else in the world. So it's really an interesting aspect. And one thing else I'd like to add on to that is what's happening on the paper side of the markets as well in China. Silver's future trading just opened in China. The uh, Shanghai Futures Exchange began trading uh, silver futures in early May of this year. And the trading was more than about $21 billion in silver contracts that took place in that first month, which is uh, 15 times the amount traded two years ago. So I think I'm making my point very clear that the trend in China is very, very strong and continues even with this quote-unquote global recession, which I think we're in. Silver, a lot of people think, well, the industrial side is waning because of you know the slowdown in the global economy. And to some extent, that's true. That is true in the solar part of the equation. But the overall, if you take it on balance, on everything that's dependent on silver in the industry, I make a case that, you know, it's neutral and maybe even still increasing. It's really hard to get a handle on all the numbers because the data really isn't there for anyone to really get all of the numbers and really know for a fact. But the trend is certainly strong and I think will continue. Do you think in some way that China, in addition to offloading their currency, and by currency I mean their holdings in American dollars, our currency, and turning it into silver, do you think they're wanting to defeat the rise of the dollar and make sure that defeat, in fact, happens? Hard to know, but let me state this. I just got back from the uh, Hong Kong conference sponsored by Standard Chartered Bank, which is the largest bank in Asia. And this is a bank that sponsored this conference. And the overall theme, although they might not say it in these words, were that get out of dollars and get into resources. Now, those are my words, again, not theirs. But the whole conference revolved around every kind of resource you can think of and why you should be buying it even now. And that, I think, is the Chinese attitude. If you look at what the trends are there, you'll find that they're buying less and less U.S. debt, and they're buying more and more real assets, either above ground or underground. In other words, buying mining projects, mining properties, outright taking positions in in large and mid-size concerns that are resource-based, and they're also stockpiling some metals above ground. 
and other things like energy, very important, of course. So they get it. They're turning that you know paper money into real assets, which is what my business is about and several others. They get it. So that is a trend. Again, I don't think it's going to stop. In fact, I think it probably will either level out here for a while and then accelerate in the future. Are the Chinese going to lead the way to where banks become what they were in this country, especially back in the Old West? Banks were full of gold and silver, and that was the currency. It's hard to say, but what I will state is what was interesting after I did the keynote speech on the first day, we opened up for question and answers for about 15 minutes, and a gentleman asked me if I thought it would be a good idea to have the Hong Kong dollar backed by silver or not. Of course, obviously, I said yes, and I also quickly added on, I don't think you'd ever be able to do that. I think the uh, banking authorities in Hong Kong would frown upon such a plan. But people are thinking that way. And also, additionally, say that there was a meeting in Southeast Asia a very long time ago about a gold-backed yuan, also known as renminbi, the Chinese currency. And I do think that whatever country backs their currency by either gold, silver, commodity, something tangible, something real, will probably be the next currency. In fact, that's what I was part of my speech at this Hong Kong conference, was that it's the same old story, it's the same old crime. Every time that we've gone on a fiat monetary system on a global basis, whatever century we've chosen to do so, the disruptions to the populace have been extreme, and then there's always a way back onto the gold standard, more or less, and then you get some much more stability. And that this is, I think, what will take place in the future. Now, this time around, it's really hard to say. I don't really see a pure gold standard. I see some pseudo-gold standard or, again, some basket of commodities, maybe a basket of currencies. The bankers don't want to give up control. So it's going to be a very, very interesting, you know, next few years, you know, three to five, I think, going forward. What about gold and silver stocks, David? Is the move coming, or are they still irrelevant? can't believe I said well, that. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, one that hits me in the solar plexus, because, you know, although I follow the markets carefully and do speak about them in the morning report, and so basically, if you just traded, you know, the, the physical or through a derivative, my work would be very helpful to you. But we really spend a lot of time on the mining equities, and they are just dirt cheap, very undervalued. I think it's the place to be. I really, really know I've been saying that now for several months, and I've been correct for several months, unless the bottom falls out one way or another, which I just don't see happening. I mean, these stocks, uh, for the most part, are so undervalued that I think if you're patient and you're willing to wait, you know, two to three years out, you're going to be extremely happy. Most people in the sector are already in. They don't want to buy more. They're discouraged, but uh, really it's a good time to buy. Well, who can wait? Well, I suppose a lot of people that are on the fence that haven't invested in the sector yet that are waiting for that, you know, it's going lower or, you know, I'm wrong and silver's going to 20 or 18 or some of these numbers you see on the Internet. And again, who knows? I doubt it. And they're waiting for some certain price or whatever. And if you're technically oriented and you're risk adverse, really, if you're smart, you actually wait for the bottom to take place. And as that bottom is absolute, you're almost guaranteed, and the prices start coming up, you're paying a higher price, but you're also entering in a much safer way. So that's another way a professional will actually get in the market is, okay, I don't want the bottom. I want to know the bottom is in. And as the prices start coming up and they start getting you know, more momentum and a lot higher, you know, better pricing and better volume, then you get in the market. So that's a technique as well. So there's a lot of ways to trade these markets. It's just you've got to find a way that you know, resonates with you and you can make money with it. There's many, many ways to make money in the market. How do we know when the bottom is in? Does David Morgan tell us? Well, certainly I won't take that responsibility, Ellis. Sentiment is one. 
Another one is, of course, the technical work, seasonality. I mean, there's a lot of things that play into it, but as far as I'm concerned, you've got to kind of factor in everything. And I'm doing it based on sentiment, my subscription rates, uh, what I've done technically for, you know, four decades. And I believe that we're probably here or close to it. Tell us now about the Morgan Report. You offer a great deal of free information, but there is a multi-tiered subscription service. Actually, there's three levels of service. There's a basic, an intermediate, and an advanced. The basic is just for buy and hold investors. The intermediate, I show you the trading that I'm doing, which isn't daily, weekly even. I position trades, so sometimes these trades take several weeks to months. But I also update it, usually a couple times a month. And then there is an advanced service that's mostly for very high net worth investors or fund managers. All of that information is on the right-hand side of the website. I put videos together. So you kind of get a sneak preview of what you're going to get on the different levels of service. You have a large amount of followers as well on your YouTube channel. Well, the YouTube channel is Silver Guru on YouTube, obviously. Decided about two years ago, starting in 2011, I really didn't want to write in the public domain very much. I mean, I make my living basically writing and speaking. And I thought the best thing to do would be to use the time more wisely, which would be to put together audios and videos. And it finally occurred to me, I guess about seven, eight months ago or so, that all these audios that I do with people like you, Ellis, I should put on the YouTube channel as well. Because a lot of people will be working on a computer and they'll listen to an audio while they're doing something else, multitasking as we call it. And so I've started to just say, duh, anything that I do I should be put on on the YouTube channel. So I started doing that again several months ago, and it really seems to have kind of taken hold and a lot of people now are discovering the channel and and subscribing to it and certainly you know unless you're really have to learn that you know everything i say certainly you don't have to listen to everything that i put out there in the public domain nonetheless i do a great deal of work as anyone that's close to me knows and secondly there's a lot of information and titles are usually pretty accurate as far as what we're talking about or discussing on any given you know program so it's a quick way for someone that's new to get a pretty good education for free about the metals markets and the overall global economy and why this sector is so important. And on top of that, you get more specific as far as, you know, my short-term calls and my long or intermediate-term calls. Well, I'm feeling optimistic and somewhat excited right now. In the middle of the summer doldrums, maybe things are beginning to look up for many of us in the sector. I hope it is. I think it is. I'm really going to be surprised. The seasonality is usually at gold bottoms in August. I think June was the bottom. Again, time will tell. David, thank you very much for joining us today on the program. Ellis, my pleasure. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan, of themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the Managing Director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its Dumbo Zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. Ian, welcome back to the program. Hi, Alice. Nice to be talking to you again. You have some extremely big news in any space, but especially in the rare metal, rare earth space, with regard to the Dubbo Zirconia Project, the DZP. It involves one of Japan's largest, if not the largest, producer of separated heavy and light rare earths. Shinatsu Chemical Company. Yes, yesterday we were able to announce the agreement that we'd reached with them. It's a memorandum of understanding to start with, and of course these agreements always take that form until you work through all the issues. But the deal with Shinatsu is basically that they will take our two concentrates, our light rare earth concentrate, our heavy rare earth concentrate produced off the Dubbo project, and do separations. And they'll do complete separations of all the individual rare earths, and they'll charge us a, a toll treating fee for that. Then they will get a prior opportunity 
opportunity to buy those rare earths that they need at commercial prices and then we'll have the opportunity to take the separated rare earths to other customers and we've got lots of other customers around the world who are just waiting for the opportunity to be able to access separated rare earths. So it's a good deal for the project and for us it's a fabulous deal because Shinetsu are such a large company and a long-term involvement in the rare earth industry. Let me see if I can understand this correctly. Shinetsu is not only going to take rare earths from you, they're going to take them and separate them and make them available to you for another revenue stream. You'll be able to put together additional offtake agreements for the now separated rare earths. Absolutely, that's it correctly. I mean, for example, Shinetsu, a major rare earth manufacturing company, so they'll take out what they want in terms of things like neodymium, prosodymium, dysprosium and terbium, but we will then have access to those separated rare and the other ones that they don't want. For example, things like yttrium. Now, we've got big markets for our yttrium, mainly in Europe for phosphor manufacture. These are for your energy-efficient light bulbs, colour TV screens and computer screens. And then the other bigger volume rare earths like lanthanum, cerium, samarium, gadolinium, those sorts of things. We can actually go out and go to markets or to approach people that have they've come to us in the past and said, look, we'd like to buy this off you, these rare earths off you, but we need the separated material. We can't take the concentrate. It's a double positive step for us. This is a new market for you. It expands our market. Effectively, what it does is instead of us just selling the two concentrates to a consumer, to a company that will take them and then just separate it, then they would sell them themselves. We're able to participate like a joint venture. So Shinetsu are doing all the separations, but we will still have access to a lot of other separated material that we can sell on. So we get the effect of a better product and the increased revenue that comes from that better product. Where are they doing the separation? Are there going to be facilities built at Dubbo, or are you shipping the product to Japan? Walk us through that process, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Look, at this stage, they've got a plant in western Japan, Takafu plant, which has been operating for many years, and it produces separated rare earths and also produces a lot of the downstream products, like rare earth magnets, for example, and other electronic components. So they've already got that, but they are looking at other opportunities. I mean, I don't know this 100%. What I've read publicly is that they're looking at a rare earth magnet plant to be built in Vietnam. They do have some other operations inside China. A month or two back, they announced the deal with the Kazakh government to go in and do rare earth separation in Kazakhstan based around some old uranium tailings. So they're active around the world, but they do have existing facilities that can treat our product, our two concentrates. So, yeah, it's not as though they've got to build something from scratch. They've already got it, which is the other advantage for us. And it takes out that financial, that technical risk and that time risk for us to get separated rare earths. So you can serve your new clients who are going to be purchasing the separated and heavy light rare earths. Shinetsu can essentially drop ship out of Japan once they've done the separation on behalf of your company. Yeah, correct. That's exactly how it'll work. We get the separations. If they are done in Japan, we'll have material that we can sell back to North America or back into Europe. How soon will the company see hard cash from this? When can your shareholders expect to see some activity as far as revenue into the company from this? Still a few years off. Basically, this year we have to just go through the final stages of revamping the feasibility study to re-look at all the numbers and, of course, putting this changed revenue stream from the rare earths also impacts on that. So we've got to factor all that in. But towards the end of the year, we hope to lodge our environmental impact study.
statement with the government, have all of our process well and fully sorted out, well and fully clear on what we're going to do. We'll have funding starting to come into place. So by the middle of 2013, we're ready to go to construction. And that'll put us in production realistically now, probably early 2015. So we're still some time away. These projects are sort of large, complex projects. They take a long time to put together. So it'll be 2015 before we get cash flow out of this project. I mean, in the meantime, we hopefully have cash flow from our gold project. But as far as Dubbo is concerned, let's say realistically 2015. Well, $30 million a year from your Tommingley Gold project to provide some additional cash flow is not a small amount. No, it's great. We do jokingly almost refer to it as our bread and butter business, which it is. It's there. It provides that long-term cash flow, supports everything else we're doing while we get the big project Dubbo up and running. And then hopefully Dubbo can produce that sort of $300 million a year cash flow out of that once it gets fully operational. Now, Shinetsu is a company with a market cap of around $25 billion and net sales worldwide of approximately $12.8 billion a year. This is huge in Japan. It's huge in Australia and would be comparable to a major manufacturing deal here in the U.S., how did Alkane and Shinetsu hook up? Interestingly, they came to us. It uh, sort of resulted from a presentation that I gave about probably about three years ago, and one of their representatives approached me uh, after that conference, and we had a long discussion, and there's been ongoing discussions ever since, including some of their people coming down to see our operation at Ansto, the demonstration plant, going out on site, and then just slowly building up the relationship over this period of time. I guess we take it as a large tick of approval that they really did single us out and said, well, we think you're one of the few companies of this sort of next generation that actually will get into production in the short term. So that was a big tick of approval, uh, particularly coming from a company as large as Shinetsu. Well, that's interesting because I found the rare earth, rare metal space to be extremely speculative, if not a bubble over the past couple of years. For many of the other companies I've seen out there, the question is, well, where's the infrastructure? When would you possibly go into production? Have you identified all the resource? And what possible offtake agreements do you have? This is not something you really have to contend with, though, Ian. You're practically a made company. I'll say it. You don't have to say it. But... uh, (laughs) It would be presumptuous if you said it, but with all these memorandums of understandings in place, and some of them very, very large, that sets you aside from many of the junior companies in the space. Thank you, and we'd certainly like to say that. That's the way we would promote ourselves. I guess we do it fairly quietly and aren't out there in a big way, but it goes back to when we started. Realistically, we started on this project many, many years ago, but seriously, in about 1999. So we're at it now for 13 years. In that 13 years, we spent a lot of time developing the flow sheet, getting it all right, culminating in building the demonstration pilot plant, which started up in 2008. It's been running ever since. I just can't stress enough the need to do that. And if you want to show to the potential end users and the the shinetsus of this world that you can do it, once you've got a demonstration pilot plant operating, you can actually show them. You can show them how the flow sheet works. You can show them what the product coming off is, what that means in terms of its quality and all those sort of things. So it's very, very important. You know, if we say we've got an advantage, it's the fact that we've been doing it for so long and it's just not something that we've locked onto two or three years ago and said we're going to be a major rare earth producer. We've been at it for a long time. And that's the demonstration pilot plant that you keep talking about. You are proving that it can be done. You're proving that you can do it. That's the reason for the plant. And none of these companies have anything like that. That's right. I can't tell you who hasn't and and who has currently got pilot plants operating. Certainly, most of the information that I read show the companies have done it at lab scale, and that's fine. It's great. 
good luck. But you do have to do that next stage. You've got to build the pilot plant. You've got to run it at some larger scale because you've got to prove the, the engineering, the chemistry, and all of these things change as you go from lab scale up to pilot plant scale. So it's, it's absolutely essential, and that's my only advice to anybody looking at the rare earth sector is to, to look at where the companies are in that development timetable. Did you invent a process for production? Yes, we did. We basically developed this flow sheet from fundamentals, from the rock. I guess I can go back and say we did actually look at another project back in the mid-80s where we then worked on that. We developed a conceptual flow sheet. We actually took that to pilot plant too, but unfortunately the circumstances, and again, metal prices at that stage, we knew that it was always going to struggle. But a lot of the engineering and chemistry that we did for that process were able to then transfer over to modify for Dubbo and end up with a flow sheet that works and it's specific to this deposit. People often say to us, well, can other people copy that? And my reaction is, well, maybe, but really if they don't have a deposit that's absolutely identical to what we've got at Dubbo, the chances of the flow sheet working are probably fairly slim. So it's your deposit specifically, therefore no reason to patent that process. That's right. I mean, basically what we're looking at is a defensive patent position. So just to make sure that somebody doesn't come up with something similar at some stage and then try to come to us and say, well, you know, you're copying our flow sheet. They wouldn't succeed anyway because of the history we've got. But we're more worried about other parts of the world where legal jurisdictions are a bit different to ours, so either in Australia, US or Canada, without naming those places. But there are countries around the world which will readily copy anything if the opportunity presents itself. So it's more there to protect what we know and the fact that we don't want to be hit with some kind of an approach in the future. Well, how do you protect your process from a country that may or may not have a similar deposit, let's say China? It's very hard. Realistically, I mean, and again, putting it bluntly, one of the big issues with patenting a process is the moment you patent it, the moment it goes into the public domain, virtually anybody can copy it. So you then left just, you leave yourself open. Most people don't want to get into long-term legal arguments with a, other companies or countries over that. The only way we've achieved it to date is being very circumspect about what information we release. You know, there are numerous people that have worked on the project now over many years. There will be information about it, but there are very few people that have all of the knowledge from the very beginning of the process to the final stages. There are people who have individual components. So that's the only way that we can actually protect the process to the best of our ability. And at the end of the day, you still have these offtake agreements. Correct. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, they're MOUs. They have to be converted into proper offtake agreements, but they're a very good starting point. And to me, that's what it boils down to the end of the day. Once we've got offtakes in place, the project is going, our markets are fairly secure. Unless somebody comes in and really has an extremely uh, cheap process where they can undercut us in terms of pricing, we think we're pretty secure. And the fact that the project is located in a very favourable location, both from a an environmental sense, a technical sense, an operational sense, all of those issues make it the location of the project very good. So once you're operating, once you've got up and you've paid back your capital costs, then you're in a pretty secure place. And that's our target. That's why we believe we need to get into production. Speaking of production, you're slated to begin at Tomlingley sometime in 2013. Is that true? Yes, we're still on target for that. We just, just still need the final tick of approval from the New South Wales State Government, which we keep 
being told is soon. Once that's done, you know, we think we can start construction probably August, hopefully no later than September, but somewhere in that interim. And that puts us in production about 12 months from that date. So let's say August next year. So we're very close to go. Everything's been put in place, ready to start the work. We've even gone in and purchased a lot of the long lead items like the ball mill, which is the major component of the processing plant. That'll actually be delivered on site in uh, November this year, which really puts it several months in ahead of where it might have been had we waited for final approval. So we're taking a bit of a financial risk, but it's all part of trying to get the project up and running as fast as possible again. Now, again, with regard to speed, does this mean that your first year out, you'll be able to produce about $3 million worth of gold per month? Uh, should do, yes, correct. Yes, we'll actually be producing uh, about 5,000 ounces of gold a month, which will be $7.5 million a month. Yeah, correct. Oh, so right? it's double what I thought. It's almost $70 million a that's, year. That's the revenue, of which, of course, you then got to take off your costs. So Still. basically, yeah, we've got to distinguish here between revenue and, and costs. Okay. And final cash flow. Net revenue, yeah. This is yeah. about $30 million. That's correct. That's about $30 million a year. In about 18 months, you'll be taking a big leap in revenue then at the start of production. Yeah, correct. Absolutely. And uh, I guess the nice thing about gold is that, A, it sells itself, so you don't need MOUs and offtake agreements. And usually the processing plants within one month to start up are, are fully operational, as distinct from you know, projects like Dubbo, which might take six months or 12 months. To get up to full capacity, the gold project will be fully on stream within inside a month. So, yeah, that's, that's certainly a big advantage. When you're generating significant revenue, can you your shareholders potentially see a dividend? Certainly. It's something that we publicly stated the board believes in. We don't think we'd see it purely on the back of Tommingley because the funds generated by Tommingley are really going to be put back into the company, back into the ground. But once Dubbo's on stream, and let's say by 2016 and it's fully operational, we will be in a position to pay substantial dividends. And that's the goal. We actually set out to do that. It's a stated public policy. And I think we'll get very close to doing that in 2016. Well, Ian, it's been a pleasure catching up with you again this week. Congratulations on your latest MOU with Shinetsu, and thanks for joining me today on the program. Well, thank you, Austin. Thank, thank you for your time again. I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, president of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Find their logo and click through to Alkane's website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Michael McClellan, president of Gale Force Petroleum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GFP.V and on the OTCQX as GFPMF. Gale Force Petroleum is a company focused on acquiring and exploiting underdeveloped and undervalued oil and gas reserves in mature basins, bringing operational expertise and capital to lower-risk development-type projects. Gale Force currently owns producing oil and gas properties in Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and West Virginia. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ellis. So tell us something about Gale Force Petroleum. We've had you on the air with one of our analysts, Josh Young, but for those new listeners, your producer. Yes, we have cash flow positive, profitable, productive operations, two years in the making. Production has increased over nine successive quarters. Cash flows generated continue to increase. 
and Lockstep. When was the company founded, Michael? Galeforce was launched under its new and current business plan in May of 2010 and began a series of acquisitions that have resulted in the company having an NAV of somewhere around 70 cents per share, maybe even a dollar per share. Our new reserves report will be out in August. As I mentioned, our production has increased every quarter since then. The business plan was to acquire underdeveloped properties in the southern U.S., focusing mainly in Texas, and bring capital and expertise to those underdeveloped properties and not take a lot of risk. We haven't drilled any wells yet. We've merely bought existing production or previously producing wells and then brought them back onto production. And the strategies work very well for us so far, and we've been able to earn very good returns for our investors. As compared to other resource companies, we're not waiting for you to find oil. You're not really wasting any money on speculative drilling, are you? No. We've only bought mainly proof shallow oil reserves, whether it was existing production or prior production in the recent past. And we've reactivated that production using some new technologies, but mostly proven technologies. So there isn't a lot of risk with what we do. And yes, the cash flows back out of the properties we purchased and developed have begun immediately, and that has helped us grow the business because we've been reinvesting that cash all the way along. Do you expect to have to go back to the market for any further funding? We are fully funded at the moment. You know, we don't expect to go back to market anytime soon, but we're a public company and we're growing very fast. We've done 10 acquisitions now in just over two years. At some point, we likely will need to raise additional capital to continue our growth, but that wouldn't be till sometime in 2013. When the price of oil comes off like it did this year, it doesn't really affect your bottom line much, does it? No, I mean, this is all good territory for us. We've modeled our business at $80 oil. And we've got a lot of hedges in place. There's swaps at $100 oil for about two-thirds of our production. So even if oil is at $80, we're still going to be getting over $100 on a majority of our production. Those hedges are in place you know, on a declining basis through to the middle of 2014. So we feel very secure about our cash flows over the next two years. That's very secure. Tell us about the board of directors of your company and your background as well, if you don't mind. My co-chairman now is Scott Patterson. He's one of Canada's biggest producing investment bankers ever, raising over a billion dollars for various junior resource and technology and other companies going back a couple decades. He currently sits on the board of Lionsgate Cinema, which I'm sure you've heard of being in California. So he's an excellent resource on the market side of things. Robert Johnson is a local Dallas director who's got 10 years experience in the oil and gas business, ran and owned a private oil and gas company with Emory Johnson of Operations for 10 years. He's a very successful entrepreneur in the technology business as well. Ruben Alba is ex-superior, ex-Halliburton. He's the chairman of our reserves committee, one of the most talented deal flow assessors that I've ever seen. He's got an excellent background in geophysics, geology, and engineering, so he brings a lot to the table. Charles Marlowe is a head trader and founder at Palos Management, which is a half a billion dollar fund out of Montreal. He mainly executes short long strategies on oil and gas stocks, so he's very knowledgeable in our space. Again, has helped out greatly on the market side of things. Guillaume Dumas is on our board. He's also our CFO. He's got 20 years experience in capital markets, raising money for junior companies. He's a lawyer by background, but has an excellent financial and legal mind. So we've actually got a overall a, an excellent board that brings a lot of different perspectives. There's a very collaborative approach at the board level that leads to very good decision-making, as far as I can tell, and I, and I love working with these guys. On the operational side of things, Emory Johnson, our chief of operations, he's got 40 years' experience in executive management. He spent the last 13 years successfully building and operating an oil and gas company in East Texas. 
very steady hand in terms of managing and the growth of our production. Daniel Smith is our chief technical advisor. He's based out of Tyler, Texas. He was formerly with XTO and oversaw a million cubic feet of gas production a day. Very challenging completion techniques that he executed on there. He's helping us with all aspects of our development. And actually, Daniel, Ruben, and Emery form our technical committee. And that technical committee oversees and approves all of our capital spending, both acquisitions and CapEx for development. And so between Ruben's experience with Spear and Halliburton, Daniel's with XTO and Emery's in operations, we've got an amazing technical team. And how about yourself? What brought you into the company? I was initially hired to restructure and relaunch Gale Force. My background is in finance and general business. I did a Bachelor of Commerce way back when and initially worked doing swap operations with Deutsche Bank in London, England. I helped set up financial systems for the Scottish Parliament in 2001 when the Parliament was founded. Then I was selling hedge funds and mutual funds for pioneer investments out of France to Europe, Middle East, Africa. When I came back to Canada, I moved to Montreal and did various financial roles, but I ended up becoming the CFO of a technology company that was listed on the Venture Exchange and ascertained a lot of corporate finance experience. Ultimately, that led to being the CFO and CEO of what is now Gale Force and being hired to restructure it and write the new business plan. I wrote that business plan with the help of others to take advantage of the current macroeconomic climate. We wrote it with the benefit of having seen the gas price collapse of 2008 and the general difficulty small companies were having financing themselves after the financial crisis. So we've only gone after shallow oil. We haven't really pursued gas at all. We do have some gas production, but it's liquids-rich gas production. We've gone after opportunities where the sellers of properties have often been in financial distress which has allowed us to buy at relatively good values. Not every single property we've bought has been coming in or out of a bankruptcy, but some of them have been, and it's, it's enabled us to get in at very good prices on the properties before we start applying capital to the development part of the process. Right now, we would intend to continue doing what we've been doing for the last two years because it works. We've got a little bit of a track record now, over two years of successfully doing what we had set up to do initially. And the business plan that we wrote back then is just as much or even more suitable for today's market. What I mean by that is that a company like ours is ideally positioned to take advantage of opportunities that a lot of other companies cannot take advantage of. We have a $15 million bank line of credit at 5%, so very low interest rate. There are not a lot of other companies that can raise equity capital like we can, and we've successfully raised all the equity we've needed to do what we've done so far. Clearly, your hedging strategy has paid off because, according to what I understand, you've made about $1.63 million on those hedges on the price of oil in the first quarter of this year. Yes, that's a great indication. Those are unrealized gains, but it does show you that even if oil prices do fall, we will be well cushioned. You know, at any time we could, with the permission of our bank, of course, dispose of that position, take that money and apply it toward new projects. Long-term strategy for the company five years down the road? We will have converted into an income trust or been bought out by someone bigger than us that's willing to pay what we're worth. And I would actually imagine that either of those two scenarios would unfold much sooner than five years from now. What we're attempting to do with Gale Force is to grow our production to 1,000, 1,500 barrels a day within the next two years. Could be sooner or later, depending on how successful we are in execution on the business plan. But we're on track for that. We're on track right now to get to 600 BOE per day in September, um, 800 BOE per day end of this year, sometime mid-2013, you know, crossing over the 1,000 BOE per day threshold. And these numbers could be higher or lower, depending on the pace at which we do any future acquisitions. But when we get to those types of production levels and we're generating the type of cash that we'll be able to do with those types of production levels, it's a natural for us to try to convert ourselves into a loyalty trust or income trust. There's two approaches to that we're exploring right now. We've actually hired an investment bank to analyze the two approaches. One is to do so in the United States, where the valuations that companies who are loyalty trusts 
obtaining our significant multiple evaluation that we're getting right now. In Canada, there's the same thing. There's a royalty trust structure that works in Canada as long as there are foreign held assets. And given that Gale Force is a U.S. company, all of our assets are in the U.S., we can continue to be listed as a unit trust in Canada with foreign U.S. assets and qualify for that royalty trust structure. And in so doing, hopefully get the type of valuations that other royalty trusts are getting, which would be you know, a two, three times multiple from what Gale Force is trading at today. Speaking of trading, can you talk about your share structure? Gale Force has got a very clean share structure. We do have some preferred shares out, but they're essentially non-voting common shares that were created to restrict the voting power of certain key investors. So we've got common shares or preferred shares, and then we've got straight bank debt. And we don't have any you know, weird convertible instruments, convertible debentures, things that make the, the cap structure difficult to, to understand. We've got about 85 million shares out overall and don't expect to go to market for another year. We've got $6 million of capital to spend today on top of just having acquired a $4 million property. There's additional capital that will become available to us likely from our bank line. So we've got a very clean, good capital structure that's perfectly suited to help us grow our business rapidly over the next year. Well, Michael, thanks very much for joining me today on the program. We're looking forward to hearing from you again in the near future. Thanks, Alex. I've been speaking with Michael McClellan, CEO of Gale Force Petroleum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GFP.V and on the OTCQX as GFPMF. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Ranting Andy Hoffman. Ranting Andy Hoffman spent 15 years on Wall Street before shifting his focus to precious metals in 2002. Over the past decade, he has become a global expert in gold and silver analysis, and in late 2011, joined Miles Franklin Precious Metals as its marketing director. Andy, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, as always. This year, I picked up some physical silver at the $33 an ounce mark, thinking it would go up to $50 or $60 by the end of the year or next year. A good investment, most likely. But now I'm waiting for silver to head down to $26 an ounce or even 25 Any chance of that happening so I can accumulate some more? Well, the first thing I'll say is that people need to realize that physical gold and silver are not investments. They are money. If you own mining stocks or GLD or anything else that's a paper investment, there's no telling what could happen. You could lose everything or you can get rich per se. But when you own physical gold and silver, unless you need to sell it immediately, it's just money. Consider it like your money in the bank back when banks were safe and actually paid interest. But if you're asking, have we reached the bottom? I can't know what's going to happen with paper, gold, and silver. It would seem, if you looked at technicals, long-term technicals, that they have built an enormous, enormous base, silver at the $25 level and gold in the low 1500s. And of course, euro gold, people don't realize that with the manipulation, it's not just dollar gold, it's uh, euro gold as well. Euro gold has a giant pennant formation that's now 11 months long. It's the longest pennant formation I've ever seen, and it's only 5% below its all-time high. So given all that we're seeing in the world economically, politically, and now that the war drums are beating again, it's hard to see a major uh, decline in the price of physical gold and silver in the coming months, particularly with all the news of the tightness in the market. We just saw Eric Sprott's fund buy $200 million of silver, which may be more with the green shoe, and we just learned that the Chinese have bought more gold in the last five months than all of the Bank of England owns. So I find it hard to believe there will be any kind of significant decline. I think the correction, per se, is pretty much over, and 
it's only a matter of time before we move back up to the old highs. So do you think entities such as Sprott Money and the Chinese are seeing opportunities in the market and they're hedging against who knows what may happen in the future? Well, when we talk about Sprott, it's not Sprott Money. That's their bullion company. It's the Sprott Physical Silver and Gold Trust, PSLV, and the PHYS closed-end funds. Eric Sprott, I call him Admiral Sprott because not only is he one of the good, smart guys that gets it, but he's the one who's putting the most of his personal money and reputation into the fight. I mean, make no mistake, this deal that he did last week was as much to uh, attack the cartel as it was to make money for clients. As for the Chinese, well, they and pretty much every central bank in the world have been buying gold for years now. It's not just to hedge. It's because they know the end of the uh, fiat currency system is coming. Everyone knows he who owns the gold makes the rules because ultimately every fiat currency system in history has collapsed. And the current one is now global. There's not a single currency that's backed by anything for the first time in history. The Chinese, given that they've built up this industrial base and these big reserves, have the most dollars or let's just say fiat currency to spend to buy real items. So they're the leaders in buying but it's everyone. Remember, we had the Washington Agreement back in 2000 where the banks agreed to sell quotas of gold each year. And each year that number dribbled off until finally about two or three years ago they became net buyers. And that number is now becoming a very large positive number. And I guarantee you it's a lot larger than what they report as well. So basically everyone is trying to get real items of value before the currencies crash. Do you believe that the Chinese are just attempting to offload American dollars? Yes, the Chinese want real items of value with their paper currency. They've had record imports of gold, of oil. They've been making trade agreements with pretty much everyone in the world except for us. They know that they have the most to lose because they have so much paper currency reserves. And therefore, they're the most aggressive in trying to transfer them into real items of value. You refer to silver as money and not an investment. Money that we may have to spend down the road. I'm not necessarily on board yet. I still can't walk into a supermarket and hand over silver in exchange for my groceries. Well, can you walk in with the treasury bond and give them groceries? How about a stock certificate? How about a CD? How about your bank statement? Of course not. And not to belittle your question, because I think you're setting me up to answer what so many people are asking me. For one, when people say gold's a barbarous relic, it doesn't pay interest, you can't eat it, you can't buy things in the store. Well, tell me this also. If you go to Canada with a dollar, can you buy something in the store? No. Can you buy something in London with a dollar? No, of course not. The dollar is its a currency with very limited usage around the world, and less so each day for all the currency agreements that are being made outside of the dollar. And the fact is... Gold is the most liquid of all monetary instruments in the world because you could go to London and buy something with the gold. You may have to exchange it first. You would have to exchange a treasury bond for something to buy in the grocery store, too. The fact is gold and silver are the only things that have maintained their value for 5,000 years as money because they're the only things that meet the definition of money. There is a definition. I mean, yes, it has to be something you can go to the store with, but it has to hold its value. There has to be some semblance of scarcity and an ability to understand how much is out there and that it cannot be created freely. And then, of course, that it's divisible and that it doesn't deteriorate or perish like vegetables, stuff like that. The fact is, gold and silver are the only things that have worked as money and will be the only things that work many, many, many generations after we die. Let's say I've got about $10,000 to invest. And I'd like to invest in either physical silver or gold. I'm leaning towards silver, though, because it's still poor man's gold. You've brought up gold several times in this conversation while I've tried to focus on silver. What are your thoughts? Well, it's funny you should say that I actually got a aggravated email the other day from someone saying, all you do is talk about gold, which is 
A, it's wrong because I talk about silver constantly. But the fact is, sometimes I just talk about gold generically, and I mean gold and silver. Instead of just writing the two words precious metals, I just use the word gold because they have basically a 100% directional correlation, and everything about gold can be said for silver pretty much. And on top of that, especially in my blog, I'm referring to a lot of the articles that are published. Most articles focus on gold. I mean, silver is a tiny market, and it gets so much less press than gold does. So I'm constantly referring to it, but I don't mean to, okay? I believe equally in, in silver and gold, and I know that silver is going to go up vastly more than gold because it's vastly more manipulated. The gold-silver ratio is a ridiculous 60 to 1 now when it should be closer to 15 to 1 and ultimately will be. And, uh, and you ask about diversification. I mean, I've made it very clear for many, many years now that I've been 100% in the sector. And over the last couple of years now, I've gone to 100% bullion because I don't trust anything paper with all these scandals, with all the manipulations, the short selling, the increased role of the PPT, of the exchange stabilization fund, the cartel. I wouldn't go long or short any stock, any bond. I certainly wouldn't deal with bank instruments like CDs, which pay nothing, so you have, you know, and you get the risk of inflation and having your money stolen. Basically, for me, I'm personally two thirds physical gold and one third physical silver. And a year ago, when silver hit its highs, it was more silver than gold. It just happens to be where I am right now. I feel comfortable that way because the only thing that I trust is real money right now. You won't make any money on fixed income with the banks going to not just zero interest rates, now we're getting negative interest rates. It's impossible to make money in the stock market because we're in a bear market no matter how much the PPT fights it. And if you go into real estate, that's in a bear market as well. Yes, gold and silver to me, equal investments. Silver is a bit more volatile, so for people who are new to the sector, they have to realize, I think you need to have a little more gold so you can wade into it and understand what you're dealing with. Over the long term, they're both going to preserve their purchasing power. So what we're talking about is a real savings account. Back when I was growing up, Andy, a, a savings account existed in a bank, and it had an interest rate. I put a little money in there every week or every month, and then after a while, I had something substantial that I could buy presents with. You're talking about a tangible asset that you can control, whether it's stored at Miles Franklin or at your secret location. This is just good common sense, essentially. Yeah, look, what we've been taught for generations, meaning before the fiat currency debt system imploded upon itself, we were taught that dollars or euros are money, you put them in the bank, and they grow in value via interest. In the new world, because everything has fallen apart and the central banks have taken over and taken interest rates to zero, the way you save is to put your money into something that's worth something but doesn't pay interest and watch as everything else falls in value against it. So again, it used to be your savings account could increase in value against other things via interest, but today you simply have to hold something safe and watch stocks bonds, CDs, real estate, and pretty much anything you own go down in value. Because again, in this new world, it's not about how rich you become, it's how little you lose. I mean, Richard Russell, I think, made a quote like that a long time ago. Everyone loses in a bear market, and he who loses the least wins. I don't mean to be pedantic, but let me ask what perhaps a few of our listeners might be thinking. Should I start looking around the house for my gold jewelry and send it to Miles Franklin and then you melt it down and send me a check? That's not what Miles Franklin is all about, though, is it? I don't even think we could do meltdown stuff if we wanted to. I mean, if you want to sell your jewelry, you're going to sell it at a massive discount, whether you do it at these cash for money, whatever they call those things, or a pawn shop. 
I mean, I would just say if you have jewelry, just hold on to it because there's no way you're going to get real value for it until we get to a time where everyone is dying for gold and silver and they'll, and they'll go to less liquid forms like jewelry. In the current situation, you know, you're lucky that because of the manipulation, there's enough around that you can get whatever you'd like. I recommend one ounce coins, whether it's gold or silver for everybody. Silver, because remember, if we ever do need to barter, it's a lower denomination piece of money, so it's easier to get change for. Even junk silver, which is really low because it's the old junk dime, so that would be the best thing for barter. And I recommend everyone have a little of that. If you're going to break up your gold and silver, some people feel more comfortable with more gold, like myself. Some people feel more speculative by having more silver. But in the big picture, as long as you don't need to sell it, meaning, okay, I bought my silver, but I'm going to have to sell it three months now because I have to pay for something. As long as you don't need to sell it, you're going to win no matter what against paper currency and pretty much every asset class. Remember, for the past 12 years, gold and silver have outperformed every asset class on earth, and we're just getting started. The amount of money printing that's gone on in the last 10 years makes the, quote, bullishness of gold and silver that much stronger than it was in the beginning because the prices have been suppressed compared to the money printing, and the money printing is just now exploding. What about collectible coins? Folks that may have their grandma and grandpa's coin collections, and they think it's very, very valuable, and it's a real asset. Maybe they want to sell it to you, or maybe they want to buy coins from Miles Franklin. What are your thoughts on collectibles or numismatics? Well, that's a great question. Numismatics in general, I would recommend to anyone to stay away from. People who buy numismatics are not people who are generally buying because they think gold's going to go up in value. I mean, yes, it's a nice undercurrent, but it's really not much different than buying baseball cards or stamps or fine art because numismatic value is very uh, subjective. Look, we've seen numismatic premiums on some of the pre-1933 coins actually go down recently. There's no way to explain it. Let's say you do find your grandmother's collection of coins. I would have them appraised. I mean, we can appraise them, or you can have it appraised at a coin shop, and then think long and hard of why you own them because... For most people, I would recommend trading them in if they have a premium, a numismatic premium, for meltdown value coins like current coins. But again, for anyone, do not get into numismatics because you think you're going to beat the market by understanding you know, why a 1920 coin should go up in value more than the price of gold. You mentioned coin shops. Typically, you can buy physical gold or silver in many coin shops. Miles Franklin as compared to local coin shops. Well, there's pros and cons of coin shops. I mean, they don't have the working capital that a Miles Franklin has, so they're not going to have a lot of coins on hand. If you have five or $10,000 and you want to get five or 10 gold coins, then go to your coin shop. The premiums probably won't be dramatically different, but you're not going to be able to buy much. Plus, when you go to a coin shop, they're either going to only take cash or some of them will take a cashier's check, but only if the bank is open so they can verify it. So there's very limited options. They're also going to have limited selection. So yes, for very small transactions, there's nothing wrong with a coin shop. But when you're talking about big transactions, Miles Franklin and bigger dealers are going to be able to get you size. They're going to be able to get you a much bigger selection. You're going to have more payment options. There's going to be storage options. It's really just a matter of what you're trying to do. Now, you write a rant, a blog, every day. You're spending two to five hours writing it. Do you have a life outside of Miles Franklin? What's the deal, Andy? Actually, it's more like five to six hours I spend per day on it. It's my job and my background on Wall Street as a sell-side analyst and also having 10 years of experience in this sector and being quite of an animated person makes me want to write about so many things because I'm trying to spread the word about as many topics as possible within the precious metal sector. I wake up at four in the morning. I generally write from seven to maybe 10. And then I write again in the afternoon, maybe from two or three to five or six. 
you know, and my other duties are there too. So I, uh, I manage my time well, and I believe in what I do. I love what I do, and I think it makes a big impact. How do you come up with new material every day? It comes to me. My wife was saying last night, actually, how uh, she was listening on the radio about, I think, Schubert, the composer, how he wrote incredible amounts every day. Music, probably more than any composer ever. I would say in the blog world, it comes to me the way music comes to him. For one, I have a lot of great sources. I have my readers. I have Zero Hedge that pretty much in real time puts out all the news and many other websites that help me generate ideas. And also, my readership really inspires me with the questions they ask and the topics that they want to have discussed. How do we find the Ranting Andy blog? MilesFranklin.com. We actually have two free blogs per day, myself and David Schechtman, the founder of our firm. His comes out in the morning, mine in the afternoon. You can see the archive for free or you can get it emailed to yourself every day. And what's the best way to contact you directly? It's ahoffman at MilesFranklin.com. The website is MilesFranklin.com. I've been speaking with Andy Hoffman, the marketing director for Miles Franklin. Read his rant daily on their website. Andy, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. You're very welcome. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.